Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray with you as the golf world inches ever closer to that outrageous sporting circus known as the Ryder Cup. Of all the tournaments in golf, it's this event every two years that truly crosses over and grabs the attention of the rest of the sports world. Is that a good, bad or indifferent thing? Has the cup got out of control? Do we pay it too much attention? And despite all that, will I be glued to every minute of the coverage that I can see this week? The answer to the last question is yes. The rest will tease out a part of this week's show. And we have the privilege of being joined by a good, good favourite in John Huggin. Before we hear Huggy's dulcet tones, let me bring in my co-host and Ryder Cup lover, Adrian Logue, coming to us from Talking Golf Remote Studio 2 at a secret location in Sydney. Logue, no doubt looking forward to whistling straights, though I will emphasise that's not the only thing we're going to be talking about on today's show. Sure. You you call the shots, Rod. This is, it's your show. It's your show. You tell us. Not, a, not according to several listeners who've emailed over the years, apparently, like posted on Twitter. Many people think it's your show, don't they? They do. They do. That's, uh, they're my <laughs> you don't people. disabuse them of that notion, do you? <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, no you don't. <laughs> Looking forward to the <laughs> the chat today. Of course, there's no shortage of Ryder Cup previews out there, but it does pay to remember sometimes it's not the only thing happening in the game, as our special guest today will attest. He's one of golf's best scribblers, has been to more than his fair share of Ryder Cups. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was one of these events when you were just a wee boy that helped fuel the lifelong passion for golf, John Huggin. Am I remembering that correctly? Something about Lee Trevino and a wedge in the practice range? Oh, yeah, I've told that story before. This was 1973 at Muirfield, which was it's only about 11 miles from where I grew up. Um, so it wasn't a big effort to get there. Um, but I was lucky enough to be the, the son of a golf nut um, who dragged me to... Opens and Ryder Cups and all sorts as a even before I was a teenager, but I was 13 at Muirfield in 1973, and I did see Lee Trevino on the practice ground put on an exhibition of shot making that is was it 48 years later I can still vividly see the some of the shots he hit and some of the things he was saying to the about 30 of us who were there watching. It was. It was, uh, well, it was fantastic. That's the only way to describe it. Is the way. And as I said, it genuinely uh, fueled this lifelong passion. It's a life changer. You've been in golf ever since in some capacity. So extraordinary stuff. Different Ryder Cup back then, Huggy. Nothing like what we're going to see this week. It was. It was, uh, as, as memory serves, it was all about the golf back then. There was none of what? the... It was, <laughs> There was a it's lot of people event. there. Uh, there was a big crowd. I mean, because it's a big golfing area, East Lothian, where I'm from. Um, but yeah, it was just golf. There, there was none of this. There was no attempt. I can't remember there being a tented village or any of that nonsense. I'm sure there was a few toilets, but maybe that would be about it. But uh, yeah, it was all about the golf. Um, and it was a great American team. They had Nicholas and Palmer and Weisskopf and Johnny Miller and all the rest of them. They were all there. So. Um, it was Johnny Miller. Oh, Johnny Miller. I can't remember actually. Johnny Miller was there or not? But anyway, they, it was a great American team, captained by the wonderful Jackie Burke, who had previously been the captain uh, at Lindrick in 1957, which was the last time America lost. Uh, so he was on a mission uh, that week. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it, as I say, all about the golf. And Morris Bembridge played Jack Nicklaus twice and lost him on the. He had a half match and lost him on the last screen, played him twice in the one day. They had two singles on the last day back then. So it, it was uh, an eye-opener for a wee boy like me at the time. What was the year Brian Barnes beat Jack Nicholas twice in the last day of the Ryder Cup? That, that happened, didn't it? Two years later, 1975. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Nobody's ever let Jack Nicholas live it down for all the accolades of yeah. sport. It's Logue. <laughs> there's, there's a videotape that haunts me from my childhood because I've lost it. But it's from that era, and I think it's when... There was a Ryder Cup 
on in the UK and the American team were all over there, somebody took the opportunity to get uh, a whole bunch of the players to do a little clinic and uh, like at different places all around the UK as well. There were courses in England and all sorts of places. But this video on the one tape, it had Trevino, Miller, Wisecoff, Crenshaw, Ballesteros, and one other, I think, all giving about 45 minutes of instruction each oh, and incredibly wow. entertaining. Like the Trevino thing would have been very much like your experience in 73 mm. yeah. where he's just hitting balls and talking nonstop and entertaining. It's like, oh, do you want to see a draw? Do you want to see a fade? I can, I can hit a draw, you know, and he'd hit a draw. And the Miller one was just knocking the pin out on every single shot in this little par three that he was hitting to. And the Wisecoff one was busting driver and Crenshaw was putting and chipping. And it was the most amazing tape ever. And it's haunted me ever since. I can't find it on the internet, anything, but it was called The Masters of Golf. So, anybody who can oh, you've talked <laughs> find about that. before, yeah. yeah. Not, I don't know if I've talked about it, but I've, I've mentioned it to you, but it haunts me. Yeah. Somebody please send me that table. Find, Ricky help Bush me will find, find it. Yeah, Ricky Bush will find yes. it. He's the man. He always digs up that sort of stuff. Incredible. That's the romance the cup is built on, Logue, what Huggy's just laid out for us there. And, you know, you can't help but pine to have been there and been a part of it. That's not what the Ryder Cup is now. Could it go back to that? If you know what I mean. That romance. Any, I don't know. Were there any chants, Huggy? Like, were they chanting USA or Ole Ole? <laughs> <laughs> there was no, no. Well, there weren't any Spaniards in the field that week. Um, but no, I mean, it was it was just golf. I mean, I'm quite proud of the fact that where I come from, it's it's an incredible golfing area. You slow the, and if you've ever been to, you know, Gullen, Muirfield, North Berwick, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's just, it was pure golf back then. It, it was none of the razzmatazz. I'm not sure, it, it was on the television, but it, it probably was only highlights. It, it probably, you know, there was no, you know, dawn till dusk, you know, analysis of every footstep that they took and... Uh, and and I think it, it was it was better for it. I mean, call me an old fuddy duddy, but um, you're an old fuddy duddy. I do think that the uh, <laughs> it's a bit excessive now. Ever until the golf starts, it's 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 saved by the golf as ever these things. Yeah. But until it starts, oh my goodness, what a pantomime! I think I asked somebody one question. Posted- Some, so, somebody's still touching their mic. I think it's you, Huggy. Your headphone cord's not touching the mic, is it? Are you leaning on it? You got a squeaky chair. There's a noise. I'm not happy with it. How's that? My life's mission is to make Huggy's life difficult with microphones and other stuff that he doesn't understand, computers included. <laughs> Sorry, Logue, you were about to say something. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the tournaments back – the Dunhill Cup I always have mm. fond memories of from that point of view as well. I thought that was a fantastic teams event back then. It's, of course, I guess you can draw a dotted line to what it is today, but it's uh, it was certainly had a distinct – uh, feel about it and that medal match play aspect of it combined with being a, a country-based teams event I thought was pretty compelling and we have we don't have that at least in the men's game anymore. Um, but then uh, uh, some Michael Wolf posted the other day that the, the Ryder Cup for a while was sponsored by Johnny Walker. It was the Johnny Walker oh. Ryder Cup. <laughs> it, was also, it was also sponsored by Heineken. I, right. I went to the it was at Lake Nona in Florida, and it was sponsored by Heineken. When that, that, Extraordinary when that to think of it yeah. not having, oh, well, you know, once having a naming rights sponsor. It's uh, one of the. No, did you say the Ryder to- Cup went to Lake Nona in Florida? No, the I'm World Cup. No, no, World no, no. Cup. He's talking about the Ryder Cup. Yes, yeah, oh, the Ryder Cup was the Johnny oh, Walker sorry. Ryder Cup. Right. 
I thought you were still yeah. talking about the World Cup. Yeah. No, no, no. I can't. We lost the lost the. Um, We'd lost a Ryder Cup there somewhere. I didn't remember the Lake Nona event. Who won there? There was a Solheim <laughs> Cup at Lake Nona, but not a Ryder Cup. Yeah, yeah indeed. Uh, I guess the question I should have asked, like, have we lost that romance? Has all of that now gone from the Ryder Cup, what Huggies des- described there in 1973? Oh, not necessarily. Like, you still you still have the golf. And, and I don't think anybody would argue that it's not an incredibly entertaining event these days in its own right for for what it is. Um, it comes with uh, the introduction of all those extra elements that it has now also introduces some not great elements. Like I think we're going to see again, a crowd controversy of some sort next week. Um, Wouldn't be a Ryder Cup without it, would it? Exactly. And Solheim Cup does rules, Ryder Cup does crowds. That's how it works. (laughs) Exactly. So there'll be something happening with a crowd next week. It won't be quite as bad as it will be. Is it going to be in New York in a few years' time? Yes. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's terrifying to consider, isn't it? Uh, uh, There'll be something next week which is going to leave a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And it will, but, you know, it'll, it's generally outweighed by all of the, the spectacle of all the good stuff. So, indeed. The romance in some ways has been p- replaced by this adversarial nature, hasn't it, Hucky? Somebody tweeted again this week that we, we just often forget we get caught up in this team against team thing. It's extraordinarily adversarial. When it, 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 ultimately, it should be about what you're describing there, about the golf. The golf will save it because the golf will be extraordinary quality. But I just wonder whether we lose something by the adversarial nature of it. Well, yeah. I mean, my American friends um, never believe me when I say this, but I really don't care who wins. I, I no. just want it to be close. That's right. Because there is nothing better in golf than team competition when it's close. I mean, we saw the the Solheim Cup recently. I mean, it kind of oh, the it looked like Europe were going to win for a long time, but they ultimately kind of staggered over the line. Mm. Um, it can be even better than that if it, if the result is in doubt. Like, like Gonigos, the last time in the Solheim Cup when it went to the, the last match and the last green and the last putt. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, it's compelling. Uh, in the it, There is uh, nothing better in golf than that. And it, I just hope it's close this week. I, I, I don't really care who wins. It doesn't matter who wins it ultimately. Uh, but if it's close, it's, it's great theatre. There's no doubt about that. It's funny because we get a lot more of that close golf in this adversarial sort of era it's what we didn't have back in the Ryder Cup before the introduction of the Europeans, wasn't it? It was a pretty one-sided affair, as we've seen the President's Cup to this point. Yeah, it was a bit of a garden party uh, back then, and, and Jack Nicholas did the right thing when he wrote his letter mm. to the British PGA and said, you, you need to do something here. I don't want to play that Brian Barnes again. You need to get some Europeans on <laughs> yeah, this team. Yeah. And, team and, that and, I can and, not, and everybody forgets that Norman Wood beat Lee Trevino in 1975. Never I bet Norman, Norman Wood hasn't forgotten it. No, he hasn't. I know he hasn't. He told me. <laughs> In fact, I look forward to hearing him on a podcast with you one day at some point, Huggy, talking about it. That would be yeah. that would be an hour in itself, wouldn't it? Just the match. He could go through it shot by shot. It'd be hanging on every sort of word. Of course, you'd be drowning in Ryder Cup content this week, Logue. I'm keen not to do too much Ryder Cup stuff, partly because I don't think we can add much more. There'll be people out there doing extraordinary research and producing extraordinary stuff about the Ryder Cup. I don't have the time to do that. Uh, but is it almost too much? Uh, no, it's not. It's fine. It's fine. It may be too much for you. I know, like you, you get upset by this sort of thing, but it's fine. People want, people want all that mm. content. They get entertained by it, and there's a lot of non-golfers who watch this thing, or, or golfers whose interest peaks at this. Uh, so and they can't fine. get enough. Yeah, 
they can't get. Yeah, and you don't have to read all of it. Let's face it. No, that's exactly. That's the, you've got a choice, yeah. don't you? Sort of, you choose not to. Although, Huggy, you've written a piece that I haven't read, but I've had several people tell me I should. What have you written? Well, that's a novelty in itself, isn't it? Um, that, a that you haven't read it, and B that you, you're rec- it's <laughs> well, you recommended. Didn't send it to me. I need you to send me this stuff by email. Well, I'll read it, it then. It's on the website that you work for. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's well, yeah. I mean, I just a, a little bit of digging into the my long held contention that there's been a over the years since Europe became involved that there's a bias, maybe unconscious bias. Um, towards Great Britain and Ireland, and certainly in terms of the captaincies. There's been 21 Ryder Cups since Europe uh, got involved, and only f- on only four occasions has there been a continental captain, and three of them were the, you know, as I described on the absolute stick-ons, it was Seve, Bernhard Langer, and Jose Maria Lathabal. I mean, you could hardly uh, not have them as captain until Thomas Bjorn popped up. It was They were the only ones, and we've had... Any number of you know British and Irish captains. In fact, three of the last four captains have all been Irish. Not that that matters. You should always just pick the right person. But um, I find it hard to believe that somebody like Manuel Pinero or Jose Maria Canizares or even Miguel Angel Jimenez uh, never really got a shout. And there, there's never been a Swedish captain in all the time. I mean, the Spaniards have had at least one player in every team that they've since Europe became involved. And there's only been two Spanish captains. I mean. It doesn't seem quite right. And uh, once I did a wee bit of digging, it, it, be, it all became clear that I was right. There has been a bias towards the, well, the GB. Now that, we've got, now that we've got Brexit, Huggy, should it not be the other way around? There should never be another GB in ICAP. And you guys should be playing <laughs> well, for the President's Cup. Isn't that how that should never work? Been the, there's, there's a guy from, uh, apart from the UK guys, um, well, Ireland are still in the, you know, Shane Lowry, is his nation, if you like, is still a member of the EU. And Victor Hovland is from Norway and last time I looked, Norway wasn't in the EU either. So, so he EU should be on the President's Cup as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's right. That's that's yeah. the team they should be. <laughs> you can make the same argument about the Americans though, isn't it? A lot of people complain about Larry Nelson's never had a shot at it. Uh, lots of people haven't had the captaincy uh, in the US as well. And you can always have that sort of story. I wonder, do you think there's anything in it, Huggy, or is that just coincidence, that bias? Or do you think it's a legitimate bias in behind closed doors, some people saying, eh, we, we don't want Europeans captaining the team? Well, it's just, I mean, as I mentioned in the piece, I mean, Robert Carlson, uh, by all accounts, was the outstanding uh, assistant captain three years ago in France when Bjorn was the skipper. And he's assistant captain again. It, it was noticeable that he was one of the first picked by Harrington, obviously, been told this guy's you know terrific in the role, but will Robert Carlson ever be captain of the Ryder Cup team? Absolutely no chance. That's never going to happen. In fairness, don't you have I mean, to have done something in the Ryder Cup to have earned that? Well, team, he, he played. I think he played two or three times. He was European number one. Um, he had a pretty good pedigree, at least as good as um, Mark James and Sam Torns. Those guys. Mm. Um, He's tall. They, neither one of the, they were neither they were never European number one as far as I can remember so it it depends how you look at it i mean you know the next two captains if you believe the publicity are going to be lee westwood and ian poulter both of both of them english so you know is, is henrik stenson going to be captain is sergio going to be right. captain is martin keimer going to be captain keimer would be a great captain wouldn't he Just yeah exactly. makes is a lot it? of sense doesn't he yeah, yeah all three be. of them would be terrific but you know i bet you i can bet you that at least two of them won't be captain my other half thinks Martin Kimer's got the best gait in golf. She loves to watch him walk. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. The things that people yeah. switch on to. Quite strong. Uh, when people say things like that, I always, my mind always goes to Johnny Miller and Ray Floyd, who were both mincers. They minced rather than minced. Walk. Scott, mm. Adam yeah, Scott's a bit of a mincer. Well, when he runs, Adam Scott's yeah, a mincer. Yeah, that's Have true. you seen him yeah, running? It's terrible. Yeah. Dustin Johnson walks like a cowboy. He's fantastic, R- Dustin Johnson. Ray Floyd and Johnny Miller, the ultimate mincers in golf. Mince. Johnny Walker. Uh, sorry. Um, Johnny Jimmy Walker has a pretty good walk. It's a nominative determinism there, maybe. But he, maybe, you know, yeah. He He's got the bowed good legs, walk. hasn't he? He does look like someone who's <laughs> just climbed off a horse. He's got that sort of bowed leg thing happening. Who else got a good walk? I have to think about it. I might do an episode on that one day. The great golf gate, great gates. <laughs> There's a lot in that. <laughs> We can start rating them. We'll drown in a sea of numbers in this coming week, Logue. We'll be told repeatedly how much data and how many, and the, 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 the pool of statistics the captains have got to draw from in making their pairings and selections and even choosing the members of the team. How much validity has any of this got? I don't know. I might have a little bit of data for you later in this podcast, Rod, because I've done a little bit of number crunching, a little bit of research. And, some actual uh, research. I'm staggered by this. I'm looking forward to that, actually. It's pretty good. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if the data counts for a hell of a lot, to be honest, but it's if, as long as they believe that it counts, then you know, it gives them a little bit of confidence. Have you just injected going time out. for me? It's not a lie if you believe it? <laughs> you just give it a second <laughs> stanza? Well, I think that's what lie. it comes down to. Look, yeah. you know, maybe it makes a fraction of a percent of difference to the outcome doing all of that research, but in the end- there's still these players who know how to play golf standing over a golf ball and just doing what they know how to do. And, uh, yeah, I just, it's it, it's more of a mental thing, I think, than anything at this point and, and in, in that sell- arena. Yeah. What those selling the data never tell you, Huggy, is that the losing captain also has access to all the same stuff, don't they? So ultimately it doesn't really make it. Someone's going to win and someone's going to lose, aren't they? So uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. I was saying to Huggy before you arrived, Logue, it always my my favourite statistic in golf, and my favourite notion of it is putting. It's a fifty-fifty proposition. Every single putt, it's either going in or it's not, and all the rest is just window dressing. You can miss from a foot, and you can make from sixty feet, which is It's perfectly reasonable. Every single putt is a fifty-fifty proposition, and you can forget the rest of the nonsense that goes on about that. You know, three feet, four feet, five feet, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they're all fifty-fifty. What would Peter Golson make of all of that? Uh, well, Peter Thompson's take on putting was don't three-putt. Try not to three-putt. Yeah, two-putt everything. Yeah, yeah, that was his philosophy. Try not to three-putt, <laughs> which is just yeah. staggeringly simple, isn't it? Magnificent. I'll I tell you what was interesting from uh, one of the many Ryder Cup preview pieces that I wrote in the last 10 days was one on Ian Poulter. Uh, I did some research uh, at Wentworth a couple of weeks ago when I was there. Everybody mentions how well Poulter putts in the Ryder Cup. I mean, he's extraordinary, or has been. So I asked um, Phil Kenyon, who's the the putting guru on the European Tour, and uh, what if he has any explanation for how well Poulter putts in the Ryder Cup environment? And he, and he said, well, it had absolutely nothing to do with technique, zero to do with technique, because Poulter's technique isn't as good or as bad as, as anybody else's. It's a backhand, it's exactly, isn't it? You know, it, it's it's a good technique, but it's everybody. There's a lot of them with good techniques. But he sets himself apart, obviously, in the Ryder Cup just through the X factor, whatever that X factor is. I'm not sure any, the, the whole point of that story was for me to arrive at the notion that nobody really knows why he performs as well as he does in the Ryder Cup, and, and including himself. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that intrigued me, that uh, somebody like Kenyon, who works on technique with players, said it's got nothing to do with that. 
Yeah. Which was That's interesting. Amazing, it's, that, well, I'm always... So there's that story of Jesper Parnovic talking about the putt that Tiger Woods hold in the last at Torrey Pines. And just a couple of hours before, Parnovic had had that same putt and left it out to the right. And he said, there's no way that that comes back in from the right on the line that Tiger hit it. And he was watching the putt a couple of hours later when Tiger's hitting it. And he started it out to the right. And, and Jesper's like, oh, okay, he's, he's missed that. It's yeah, That's the same line I hit it. There's no way that's going in. And uh, it, it's, he's seen it come back around. And his, his only conclusion after watching Tiger for so many years and then seeing that at Torrey Pines is that Tiger willed it into the hole. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not, so the, nothing to do with physical anything. evidence to prove it. It doesn't yeah. break. I know it doesn't break because I hit it there <laughs> exactly. myself. Yeah. And yet Mind you, if you've seen that putt, you know, from ground level, I mean, it bounced around all over the place. So yeah. It probably yeah. just took a lucky bounce at the last minute and went in. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It does remind me of something, Huggy. There was some discussion yesterday on Twitter about, you know, I think Connor from uh, the Golf History podcast might have posted something about the – he's written a story about the best shot ever hit in – Ryder Cup. And Peter Costas talked about Seve in the bunker at PJ National. He hit a fairway wood out. I asked Laura Davies about the best shot she'd ever uh, seen live and the best shot that you know she, she'd ever heard about. She talked about that Seve shot. She climbed into that bunker and said straight out, that shot is impossible. It can't be hit. It was so yeah. good. And I was thinking about it this morning. Seve was – and, of course, it's not on film anywhere. And neither is the amazing shot that he hit at Crans this year. Seve was Tiger before Tiger. We know that. One of the things that makes Tiger Tiger is that we've captured every single piece of brilliance that he's executed. Isn't it? You've got footage of all of it. And if that had been true of Seve, Seve would have been Tiger before Tiger. I think that plugs into what you're talking about with Poulter. It's incredibly memorable, some of the putts we've seen Poulter make. And that makes you assume automatically, well, he must be a great putter. It's just he's made the putts at the right time. Same with Woods on the 18th at Torrey Pines. It's it's interesting what shapes our views, isn't it? Yeah. Well, all you need to know about that Seve shot is that Jack Nicholas said it was the greatest shot he's ever seen. No, there you go. I mean, think about that. And and I and I, I once spoke to um, Fuzzy Zeller at the Masters one year. I got a hold of him, and Fuzzy was playing Seve. He was he was in standing in the middle of the fairway while Seve was in that bunker, and I asked him about that shot, and he and he said that he, he just stood in the fairway and applauded. Wow. In the Ryder Cup, they were all square playing the last, and he applauded the shot. He says it was just incredible, you know. And I think, well, Peter Costas, as you said, then Di Davis, the late golf correspondent of the Guardian, was there and saw it live as well, and he described it as the best he'd ever seen. So it must have been something because it was. I think it was with a little Tony Pena three wood, you know, three wood, yeah. three wood. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, out of a bunker that, as I understand, is probably about six feet deep. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so we got it up and out, and it heading to it. I'll never forget the look on Laura's face. She said, "I stood in that bunker deliberately, and I can tell you that that shot can't have happened because it's impossible." And she's one of the mm. best who ever held hold a golf club. She could see no way, not that she couldn't mm. play, but that it could not be played. That was her take. You can't play that shot; it's not possible. So uh, it's interesting, isn't it? What sort of shapes our views? Well, I expect that we'll have a uh, a fabulous Ryder Cup again this coming week. It always, as long as it's close, as you said, Huggy. I think that's what. Uh, that's what people want. Uh, not that we want to get into the predictions game. Any thoughts on what might unfold, Huggy? We do this well, every time, of course. But I, I always think America's going to win, and I'm nearly always wrong. Yeah. But I, I really cannot get my head around them. How can they possibly screw this up yet again with the, with this team and all the advantages in their favour this week? How, how can they lose? 
Europe a bit like Qantas. Qantas have been riding the, you know, no mishaps thing forever. At some point, that's got to come to an end. Surely the underdog thing at some point has to come to an end for Europe, doesn't it? I mean, they can't right. statistically make the case anymore. But I tell you what, though, it, it, it wouldn't shock me if Europe won. It would surprise no. me, but it wouldn't shock me. Yeah, they play the publicity game so well, don't they, Logue? They, they're managed in that sense. They probably get an easier ride of it, but their public, their, their lead-up publicity has been phenomenal again, Europe. They, they really seem to keep pulling it off. Yeah, I'm sure it's not as tension-free in the team room as they make out, but it's uh, it, they certainly do give off a sense of unity. Um, but uh, I, I'm with Huggy. I can't. It's, it's hard to imagine how the US team can lose. They're, mm. It's a very strong team right all the way through. And uh, I, I really worry about some of the older players in the European team. Mm. And uh, they, you know, sure, they've got great Ryder Cup records, but it's a big course and uh, it's a long week and they've got to be able to play three matches each mm. at least. And uh, just under that stress, I, it's a big ask for... For some of those old blokes, I reckon. It's- yeah, I mean, the, the only recipe for success that Europe's got really is if their top three or four players win nearly every game that they play. You know, like four points out of five for Rory and the same for Ram and maybe Paul Casey does well. Somebody else pops up and does the same. That's the only way they can win. And the rest of them kind of cobble it together enough points to get to 14 or 14 and a half. Um, but if the top players in the European team, Ram and, and Rory particularly, if they don't win lots of points, they've got no chance. Mm. The scrutiny on them is <laughs> it's up a notch, isn't it? They're, they're getting a bit of bit of a taste of probably what Tiger lived with for fifteen years. It's uh, mm. it's uh, some serious pressure. Last one about the Ryder Cup. Anybody you're particularly interested in seeing? Uh, Leona Maguire was a revelation at the Solheim Cup. Huggy, is there a Leona Maguire? Yeah, in the- there is, and his name's Matt Fitzpatrick. He, he's the Leona Maguire in this European team. He's got similar game. Doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes, other than when he's playing the 17th at Wentworth a couple of weeks ago. But uh, he's the guy, he's maybe the best putter in the European team. And he's got that annoying game that never goes away for match play. He won the US Amateur back in the day, so he's no mug at match play. Uh, had a great Walker Cup. He didn't have a great time in his in his Ryder Cup, he, first Ryder Cup, he'd be the first to tell you. But he wasn't alone in that at, uh, on the European side at Hazeltine. Uh, what five years ago now? But um, yeah, he's the he's the guy that um, Harrington will be hoping wins. You know, three and a half points or whatever this week. Logue, anybody you're looking uh, for in either teams? You watching with? Him? I'm going to say Shane Lowry. Uh, I, I think is uh, a beautiful golfer. I love watching him. Mm. Um, but we'll we'll see how he goes on that golf course. Uh, one one thing before we leave the Ryder Cup, Rob. My bit of research is on whistling strokes. Oh, sorry. So. Yes. I'm- so you were trying to get away from that, Rod Murray. Yeah. I could. <laughs> just, I'm just going to check my emails. Let me know when you're done, Logan, and we'll come back to that. <laughs> so, I, I'm going to make the case for you, Rod, that uh, on a course that has a thousand bunkers, Whistling Straits might be the most underbunkered tournament course in America. Okay, you've got me, man by its dog. What happened? <laughs> Okay. Well, look, I've done some research, okay. So, I went back to the 2015 uh, PGA at, at Whistling Straits, won by Jason Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many bunkers do you reckon, on average, the players went in on mm-hmm. in that tournament, Whistling Straits? That's a good question. I, I don't know. What do they normally do and how do they go at Whistling Straits? They normally 
well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, that'll spoil everything if I go straight. Oh, Whistling okay. straight. You, you like, they, like you. <laughs> over four rounds, on average, the player, each player went in five bunkers over four rounds. Right. So one and a bit per day. I, yeah. I, I, I find that a bit disappointing right off the start. For a course that has yeah. a thousand bunkers, yeah. each player went in on average just five bunkers. But you know that tells you nothing on its own. Like, how does it compare to other tournaments? So, yes, I went. I researched every PGA from 2015 to through to 2020 Harding Park. How did you so, do this research? Strap yourself. Figure available? Shot link. Shot link. You're, yeah, you're not locked down by any chance at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's right. Exactly right. All right, come on. So here's what we found. Bolter's roll, 2016, uh, everybody went in an average of 7.5 bunkers per player. Mm. So, already way more bunkers than yeah. Whistling Straits with Whistling their 1,000 bunkers. How many, um, how many bunkers on Bolter's roll? Did you do that calculation? Uh, I, no. I didn't. It's, no. But I can tell you, you that don't... there's more bunkers on one hole at Whistling Straits than there is on the whole of Bolter's roll. So, okay. so, how how many that, bunkers that applies at Whistling to Straits are in course. play? How many well, are that's, point, that's my point, isn't it? That's my point. Yeah. They're way offline and yeah. they're not very strategically placed. And, and I think they're there for when it's very, very windy. But you compare it to something like Kingston Heath where there's, you know, there's about 140 bunkers and bunkered by Alistair McKenzie. And, you know, they've got the sharp edges so the ball can roll in. There's, they're adjacent to the playing surfaces. They're not like way away from where, where the ball is. And uh, they've got bigger catchments and they're more strategically placed. So... You've got 140 bunkers at Kingston Heath, which are far more effective than the 1,000 bunkers at, at Whistling Straits. And I get that it has something to do with the wind. Like, if it gets really blowy there, then those shots go more offline and some of those bunkers get in play. But nonetheless, the, the stats aren't proving that out. So, anyway, Bolter's roll, 7.5 bunkers per player. Quail, Quail Hollow, 6.6 bunkers per player. I hate Quail Hollow. And that's a, quail oh, hollow. Well, I'm never forgiving them for their continued covering up of the history of mistreatment of quails, but yeah, that's right. Uh, but the uh, but nonetheless, that's a course they that the nice players to, know. They were nice to hollows, though. That's the thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's right. I mean, six point six bunkers per player there, and we know you know that place from TV. There's it's a moderately bunkered PGA Tour course. Uh, Bell Reeve, seven point three bunkers per player. Uh, Real test. Brooks, Brooks Kepka only went in three bunkers all week, the least of any player that week, and uh, yeah. and obviously went on to win. Beth Page Black, eight point five bunkers per player. How many bunkers mm. does Beth Page Black have? You'd, you'd think that's a very heavily bunkered golf course, right? Oh, well, Buggy's been there. I've only ever seen it on the TV. Yeah, that 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 kind of makes me think that they were playing second shots from the rough. A lot. That would be the problem more than the, how the many bunkers there were. The bunkers, the bunkers was a consequence of the, the tee shot, yeah. Mm. Yeah, 78 bunkers on the entirety of Bethpage Black. And again, there's single holes at Whistling Straits that have more bunkers than the whole of Bethpage Black. Wow. Uh, but 8.5 bunkers per player. So we're starting to get right. towards sort of double the number of bunkers per player that Whistling Straits yields. And Brooks Kepka again, uh, only went in one bunker all tournament at, Whist- at Bethpage Black. Across those, this kept a kid. across those 144 holes, he only went in uh, four bunkers in, in those oh. two years where he won the PGA. DJ at Beth Page Black only went in two bunkers, and they obviously they finished one and two. Um, Harding Park, 2020, 8.3 bunkers per player. How, how many a, courses would you be doing here? Like, I think you made the point. <laughs> that's, where, <laughs> that's, where, that's where it stops. <laughs> that's where it uh, stops. 
8.3 bunkers per player at Harding Park. Danny Lee, who we remember from 2020 of having that six putt in the US Open, he also had a pretty dire Harding Park. He went in 17 bunkers at Harding Park, which is the most of any player of any of the tournaments that I inspected for this. So, uh, little. That's not great if you also can't putt, is it? (laughs) hitting <laughs> it in the bunkers and you can't putt that's a that's a shocking combination for a professional golfer so the, the course, course with a thousand still- bunkers yields a lot less bunker play than all of those other places obviously i mean did you did you go there for any of the majors there huggy 2011 or 2015 to whistling straight yes yes okay. what was your take from the outside it looks like a faux golf course it yeah, doesn't look it's yeah it's, it's one of visual, those- but it's not I don't know. It seems to lack it, something. It always makes me laugh when American courses are described as as links like, and that and you can't run the ball onto the greens. Um, that's yeah. it's one of those places. Um, it's you know, it's it's you know it's scenically nice visually to look spectacular. At. I mean, yeah, it is, but it's but then place. so was Turnbury before they fixed it. Um, so was Pebble Beach, and it's you know mediocre at best and. Many of the whole oh, you're in that camp, are you? That's, that's one of the yeah. world's great so divisions. The, the scenery, you know, scenery's nice, but it doesn't make for great golf necessarily. Yeah, interesting. It, it's a good, really long it, and it, sort of disappointingly soft. It's a good test yeah. for this level of player, though, isn't it? The, the sort of golf these guys play, it will produce compelling golf for the Ryder Cup, which is what you want the course to do. Yeah, um, yeah. Which not is not to say you couldn't have a compelling Ryder Cup. But yeah. yeah, not surprising at all that 2015 Jason Day won there. Like no, that's, that's right. Peak Jason. He, he was a perfect fit. Uh, yeah, he was. Yeah, and playing the uh, the peak game. Well, we'll see what unfolds and we'll be interested in it. Of course, as I said, there's lots of other stuff happening in golf, as there always is. Like, did you catch – I didn't listen to the whole thing, but I saw some of the highlights of Mike Wan's appearance on the Fried Egg podcast with Andy Johnson. He had some interesting takes on distance and equipment. Did you – what did you think? Well, outlay first what he said mm-hmm. for those who might have missed it. We'll put, it, of course, we'll put a link to the show notes there for the, the oh, episode itself. What, what was your <laughs> what was your take on sort of Mike One? Why is he on this PR tour? Is the other thing? This is the second podcast he's appeared on in the last month. Well, he's he's a good talker, um, so you know, they might as well. Like, it's the perfect medium for him, really, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. He, if if they wanted to hire a talker, they've they've got one, um, mm-hmm. and they did. He, and he's, they have. he's very good at. Uh, the narrative that tries to please everybody with nothing threatening and really taking on every challenge with sort of platitudes and a, and a volume of words. And and that's a skill. It, it's not mm. necessarily a skill, I think, that you, the USGA or that golf needs at this point. Um, and I think we all sort of know that sort of guy in organisations that we've worked, and it can be a very effective leader, um, but it's just it's not a time for platitudes and stability in golf and it's not a time for pleasing everybody. I often feel what I'd like to see from the USGA right now, you know, I don't think Mike Davis was all bad. Uh, Like there's strong opinions. Like everyone used to uh, love Steve Jobs's leadership because he had strong opinions and, but they were sort of, they were loosely held. That, That was his mantra, strong opinions, loosely held. So he, he'd try things but he would be willing to change if if it proved that his decisions were wrong. And I don't see that at all from Mike Wan. I see that I see him more as consultative, bringing a lot of people into the room and uh, get, you know getting a consensus and um, making a decision on on a consensus basis. 
there's not it's not a very opinionated form of leadership, and I'm not sure that's what we need at the moment. Um, the gist of what he said about the uh, distance debate, I don't have the quote with me, but um, it was uh, interestingly playing to his strengths, I think. He's obviously coming from a background of dealing with sponsors. The LPGA, I think, he felt his audience was the audience that he most needed to please was the sponsors. Yeah. And that's true. Yeah. Going back he did 10 a brilliant years, job at the LPGA. He the LPGA the needed that. Perfect man for the for the job at the LPGA. Perfect person for the that's job right. at the LPGA. And his background prior to joining the LPGA was in uh in that area. Like he was, you know, making big sponsorship deals and um I, I forget exactly what company he worked for. He might have been on the other side of the fence. Taylor Mead, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, he went in. And he, he was exactly the right man for the job there, with um, with you know generating interest in sponsorships. And it's interesting how he got that whole organisation aligned, including the players. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with the way they did their off course pro am activities and and uh, even the language he got the players using uh, around founders and and that there was almost a bit of a cultish aspect to that, like thanking the founders before and after meetings and all that sort of thing. Um, it, it, you could view it as very wholesome or very a little bit creepy and cultish one way or the other. I don't know. It, in in any case, he got that whole organisation aligned to please that audience that he'd identified 10 years ago as and, being important. And invested. The players are legitimately invested in the LPGA and Wild Vision. They, yeah, they, 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 they really were. They weren't just yeah. saying it. They were, they, they were definitely into it. He was very much wor- not worshipped, but they really looked up to him as a leader. So. That's right. And that's an enormous success. Now, now with the USGA... I don't think he's got a singular audience like that that he can focus in on and get the whole organisation aligned to please. The USGA has a lot more people that it needs to keep happy. And uh, at cross I think that's, purposes too. But, but people yeah, exactly. With, with opposing a lot of conflicts. needs. Yeah. Exactly. A lot of conflicts. And I think that's a much bigger challenge for him and, and not one that he's necessarily going to be as effective in as he was with the LPGA. Um, but you know, we'll we'll see. That's that's my observation. But it, uh, disappointingly, with the distance debate stuff, he was uh, very interested in um, like the, he made this case that you've got to maintain uh, innovation in the equipment market, and you've got to give the equipment manufacturers something to live for. Like they've got to they've got to have something to get up every day and keep them excited about their job. And uh, that's that's the prospect of adding a few extra yards to. Uh, tee shots or bring people's handicaps down by a couple of shots, which is, as Huggy can attest, that's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> Huggy spent how many years trying to do it and <laughs> failed miserably, Huggy? <laughs> so I want to talk I, about it. I didn't think that was the thing to focus on in his comments about the distance debate. Um, I think there's there's much bigger uh, considerations in play. And, he, you know, he again, with the platitudes, he had the right things to say about the game in 50 years' time. And it's right, the governing bodies are the ones who should be concerned about not so much where the game is now, but where it's going to be in 50 years' time. Um, and with that, I'd like to hear him saying a bit more about water and you know environmental yeah. factors or something. Lay um, out the 50-year plan. And uh, land use. And, you know, mm. what, what are we going to keep making golf courses bigger? So, I mean, that directly sort of speaks to the distance debate and... That, to me, would be a much better point to be making when asked about the distance debate is, well, we've got to be concerned about land use in the future. Not like, oh, we've got to be concerned about 
making sure tireless, that Taylor tireless made, selling his two yards so that I'm excited when I I think he said he he, he wants to have that excitement of, open, of seeing a box under the Christmas tree that there might be two shots in that inside that box which riled a few people not the least of them being Mike Clayton Huggy you're very keen to jump in here I think Logue's given us an excellent analysis there yeah for mine well of I, I, I interviewed one um what three or four years ago now at Kings Barnes during the what was then the Women's British Open uh, and you're right my goodness he can talk it was it was 45 minutes and it took me forever to transcribe it all because he talks at 100 miles an hour but he, he, he reminded me, my, my friend Tom Callahan once interviewed Jerry Adams, the uh, Irish Republican politician, if you can call him that. And he was, he, Tom's impression of him was that Jerry Adams would start to talk. He had a, you know, basically a prepared speech. Tom would interrupt to, to interject or, you know, to make a point or ask a question. And then Adams would listen to the question and then would just pick up exactly where he'd left off speech. with his speech. Yeah. And Mike Juan did that with me. It was exactly the same thing. He, he was he would talk, 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 talk. I would get fed up with that and, and would want to say something and did. And he, he would pause and then he would just kick off from where he left off. He, he didn't actually listen to what I said. He was pl- he politely stopped and, and, you know, didn't say anything while I was talking, but he, he just kicked off from where he left off, as I say. And I got to my... I thought... I came away thinking that... Um, He's not. He wasn't a great listener, put it that way. And, and then, to go to your point, Adrian, I think the he's going to have to do more of that at the USGA than he's ever had to do at the LPGA because he, had a, as you say, the receptive audience much more so with the women uh, pros than he's going to have with a the band of blue blooded blazer wearing you know sustained <laughs> people that work for the USGA or are involved with the USGA. So. Um, that is going to be interesting to 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 watch going forward, and and as I'm like you, I, I I listened with horror to it, with some of the things he said about the the distance debate, if you like. Um, I don't know if high hopes. I think he's going to be another one of these guys that, that like Mike Keep Davis turned road. out to be. Just yeah, exactly. Says, he's already talking in terms of a year to do yeah. this and then a year to think about it. <laughs> it yeah, almost yeah. takes him to I the mean, end of his term. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I'm so tired of that. For goodness' sake, what you're outlaying something. there. What you're outlaying there, Huggy, is a politician's mantra, isn't it? It doesn't matter what yes. the question is. Here's the answer. Yeah. And that's and that's very effective in a corporate environment like the LPGA. This is the message we have, and it's a different type of negotiation. The USGA doesn't need a politician, does it, Logue? What it really needs, its best years for all of those organisations have been when they've had a benevolent dictator. Mm-hmm. That's what, yeah, that's what mean, an organisation gets- like the USGA needs. It gets back to that Steve Jobs thing. You need times of disruption and there's a management approach where, you know, there's that strongly opinionated thing and strong opinions can sometimes be wrong, um, but at least it brings about a bit of change and disruption. Um, and you, you need periods of stability as well. And I think uh, Mike Wan would be a good stability leader, um, but I don't think he's a agent of change. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that pans out. It's not very promising oh, yeah. at this point, though. Well, I didn't think so, though, but whereas I did find great hope in the interview you did for the thing about golf with Martin Slumbers, Huggy, who yeah. I thought handled a lot of those difficult questions much better, not in terms of deflecting them, which people can be good at, and Slumbers is good at deflecting when he needs to as well, but he, he, does, quite, yeah. he quite up front tackled head on, yes, we've taken legal advice, we are confident in our position should that situation ever arise. He made it quite clear 
that this was an issue that they are serious about, serious enough about to have done something. I don't get that sense from one. And this puts us in an awkward position with two governing bodies for the world. If they're not in complete alignment, and you'd have to think they're not, that can't be good for the game and making decisions for the game globally moving forward, much as I hate the term. Well, do you think it would be that bad a thing if, if we just cut America loose, let them do whatever they want, and then we, we you know, as we did for long enough with a different sized ball and, you know, different rules, we had stymies and well, that, all sorts of things going on. Well, the decision on. was uh, taken in 98, 2000, wasn't it, when we had the that ridiculous situation where one drive ahead on one side of the Atlantic was in breach of the rules, and on the other side it was fine. I think it was Michael Campbell, you know, the driver he used to in the US Open. He couldn't use it at the Open Chair, which, or, or the other way around, whichever it was. They said at the time then they didn't want that to ever be the case again, that they would be, they would always be unified. I, I get what you're saying, Huggy, and I understand the frustration, but it's not a realistic scenario. Yeah. Well, well Slumber, Slumbers gave the only good reason that I've heard for how long this is taking. That it was the legal stuff. I mean, the, he, he basically said that they have to get it absolutely perfect so that they can stand up in a court of law and say, we've tried everything we, the, before we got to this point. Um, that That's the only way it's going to work in a court. And that that's the only thing that's ever made sense to me for how long this this has taken. So, Because what um, we often forget is it would be irresponsible not to. You can't be the leader of the RNA and the USJ and make some dictatorial statement one yeah. day that's then challenged by the manufacturers and lose all of the RNA as USJ money in court because you didn't have your position set that you're actually you know entitled to sort of do that. So... Uh, Clates dug out a very interesting Tom, Peter Thompson piece from the, the the original Ping case, which has created this dilemma we're in in a funny way. When Ping sued the USGA and the USGA were told, you're going to lose, so they had to settle. And mm. Peter Thompson wrote a, a just a took strips off Ping and uh, and how that had all unfolded. And we still live with the, the fallout from that today. So, yes, I wasn't filled with uh, encouragement and hope from what Juan said about Certainly not for anything happening in any time. Well, I've always taken the view that, that the USG and the RNA should just do it and then use the court of public opinion as, as the place that where it actually gets decided. They, they say to the to the rest, to everybody around the world, who do you want running this game? Do you want us or do you want the equipment manufacturers? Mm. This is the time to choose. It's very dangerous, but I think it's, I think it's too late. I think the answer to that would be equipment manufacturers from the golfing public, unfortunately. Uh, well, that's the danger. That's what I think the answer would be. And, you know, the PGA Tour is vested in anyway, interesting stuff. Speaking of the PGA Tour, uh, we'll see what unfolds with Juan, et cetera, et cetera. I know you guys didn't catch. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of some of the things Phil Mickelson had to say about these rival leagues. He did uh, another link to go in the show notes. You're taking all these down, aren't you, Logan? You're collecting all these links for me to put in the show notes? Yeah, absolutely. Gary Williams, former host of Morning Drive on the Golf Channel, even though those of us outside the States don't get it. I think we're all familiar with that program and with Gary Williams' work on there. He's uh, no longer with the Golf Channel. He started his own sort of thing. I think it's called Five Clubs. First guest, it's like a video podcast idea. Phil Mickelson. Here's a couple of uh, – Jeff Shackleford just pulled out a couple of notes from the from the podcast interview, which I found interesting. Mickelson said about the wraparound tour that the tour is going away from that next year which would be interesting. I wonder what that might mean. That might be tied up with FedEx Cup, a topic we'll come to later. Mickelson lamented only 20% of the revenue generated by the tour goes to the players. Don't know if that's true, but that's a okay. 
fairly low figure, isn't it? If it's if it's on the money, uh, he said, while players use the engine of the PGA Tour to be successful, they don't make a majority of our revenue from the PGA Tour. We don't own our media rights, and YouTube make millions off it. And he cited Bryson's six-hole tee shot at Bay Hill earlier this year. That clip did go viral. I'm not sure that it generated millions but in terms of dollars, but that point in that's not the first time we've... Sorry? It's one NFT. Yeah, I'm not even. I don't even know what the NFT is, but I think I know something about where you're going. There. That's not a new thing, of course. Tiger had issues with the tour about the Mercedes Championship when he was sponsored by Buick, the first tournament of the year. There's always been a bit of niggle about some of those sorts of things. Because it says the top guys are being taken advantage of, and believes that the PIP money offered by Pontevedra sounds like a lot, but in the big scheme, doesn't even come close to being equitable. Mickelson said the competition is going to be good for all. He's talking about the rival leagues here. So we've always thought Mickelson of the big-name players would be the one who would be most open to going to a different league. He said for the first time that the top players are being valued by the PGA Tour and the players are so far down the line on kind of the bullying tactics that are being used to suppress the top players on the tour. This will come down to what's best for fans. He said it's tough when only four people have a vote. I'm thinking he's talking about the Players' Council there, I'm assuming. Of the PGA Tour says, I'm not sure we have internally the structure to fix it. So that's fairly fighting words from your pal, Mickelson Huggy. I know that you're mates with Mickelson. You like to stand around behind the 13th green in practice rounds and chat to him about all sorts of stuff. What's your take? This is this is all obviously very much about these two rival leagues. I note that the Saudis have now bought, it would seem, lock, stock and barrel, the Asian Tour. The Saudi International is back as part of the Asian Tour. That was announced during the week. Are we seeing the beginnings of the crumbling of the PGA Tour as the chief fiefdom in the game? Well, I think he, what Mickelson said about the you know this change of foot um, PGA Tour European Tour wise uh, next year, I've heard rumblings about that without anything too specific. Uh, not Scheduling wise, write, you mean anything? The yes. Rapid Tour. Yes. Okay. It's going to finish. The, the, the sort of gist of it was that the PGA Tour will finish earlier than it does right now. And um, mm-hmm. what happens after that seems to be a wee bit up in the air. I'm not sure that they've quite firmed that up yet, which is why there's nothing really to write at this point because there's not enough specifics. But they're definitely something. They're, they're talking. Yeah, exactly. And um, I was talking to Mike Clayton about this the other day and, and that was one of the things I mentioned was, you know, the old chestnut about the Australian... The sooner the Australian tour is, is on a, a either the European tour or the PGA Tour, or what becomes of the European Tour and PGA Tour. The, the world better. arm of the PGA Tour, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not ideal. A- yeah, Nothing involving the PGA Tour is ever ideal, uh, to my mind, but the, the Australian Open needs to be somewhere other than a float in mid-air, which it seems to be at the moment. It's, it's neither one thing nor the other, and that title deserves the best, in my mind, and... It's case if the best is, the best. We've had this discussion before. If he case yeah, it becomes it, the check open, the portrait well, open. Maybe, maybe that you know, who knows? I mean, I think everything's up for grabs at the moment, and there might be a. If if I was building a new tour, I mean, I, I would build it around the national opens. Mm-hmm. You know, the the old established one. I mean, Australia, South Africa, France, obviously the mm-hmm. Open. You know, the Irish, the Scottish. You know, these are great titles that you can't beat the. I mean, how great a title is the Scottish Open or the Australian Open? I mean, there's no players' just, championship, obviously, but yeah, they're good times. Well, you, you know, I mean, <laughs> so I think it's 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 all. The, who knows what stage they're at? I mean, if the, if it's an early part of the proceedings, the sooner the Australian Open gets its you know voice heard in the, in those negotiations, the better. 
uh, you're going to get the better deal. It would seem to me the, the sooner you get involved. Uh, as I say, I'm I'm talking off the top of my head here at the moment, but because uh, I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but something is. So the Australian Open needs to be part of it, whatever that yeah, is. There's no question they need to marshal the troops, the established tours, don't they, Like with these two... And PR-wise, the PGL is doing a pretty good job, frankly, of talking the talk of your average golf fan and the things they say. They clear, they clearly know about golf. Andy Gardner is clearly a golfer and a golf fan. He, he speaks the speak. He talks the language properly. He uses the words in the right place, which we often see those who don't really know golf will make some sort of a misstep with the language at some point. He hasn't done any of that. Um, but I wonder, I wonder, I don't know that we necessarily stand to win out. Is there enough return on investment for a professional golf in Australia for any of them to say, take us seriously down here? We really are an outpost in this modern world, which sounds crazy. The, the way they would look at it in any schedule would be just to put one tournament down here. And I think they'd either want to take the jewel in the crown, the Australian Open, or they'd want to invent their own tournament. That, that's, I just think, the corporate way of thinking about mm-hmm. how you'd approach covering off that part of the the globe. You're talking about the PGL here or the PGA Tour yeah. European Tour people? Yeah, either, any of them. Like, I don't, I don't well, see... You, the PGA you, Tour maybe have, have to have a swing, but, yeah, that's... You, so you need a sandbelt tournament. I mean, imagine how great a tournament would be on four of the sandbelt courses. One, We're wasting you know, our greatest asset, which yeah, is I mean, world-renowned golf courses. Oh, There's no question. Yeah. Now, can and you'll and Clates will make the same argument, and then you'll make in the very next breath the same argument which we all would that the Australian Open should go around the country. It's not fair that people in yes. Perth never get to see the Australian Open. You can't have a sandbelt Australian Open every year and take it to Perth. No, I'm talking about a separate Denver. tournament, you know, yeah. the Sandbelt so Open or it's Classic or whatever. You know. Yeah, there's an option for a third tournament, on big event on the Australian schedule, which would give us a decent swing. You have a Sandbelt Classic, you have the Australian Open, which moves around then ideally, and you have uh, the Australian PGA, which at the moment is domiciled in Queensland, but it too could travel uh, around the country, which all sounds good on paper, but I still wonder whether there's the return on investment, what sort of what level of players you get. The McElroys and the Dustin Johnsons are not going to flock to Australia under any circumstances. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll, if you pay them, they will come, but under no other circumstances will you but get them. Rory may come to play is, the Open at Kingston Heath. Is it it can't be worse than what the situation is right now, Rod. Um. Well, it depend, I suppose it depends whether you love art or science. Artistically, what Logue lays out for the Australian Open, being the tournament with a difference, eschewing all of the corporate stuff of what you're trying to compete with elsewhere, has a very romantic appeal. It's what the Masters has and has turned it into a success. Every tournament director, Jeff Ogilvy once said, every tournament director goes to Augusta Review and goes, this is fantastic. We want as much of our tournament to build this as possible and goes away and does the exact opposite. <laughs> what, what take the take away does. the naming rights sponsor. Like, okay, so drop the naming rights sponsor. That's part one. There's, then part two, hmm. start selling your concessions for like a dollar or dollar fifty. Part three, you know, create this exclusivity around it. Keep it sternly away from the other tours. You know, have it fiercely independent. You know, that's and yeah, nobody's got the guts to do that. With now it won't be an immediate success. Take back the commercial rights to it for a start. Well, very much. <laughs> don't don't outsource well, well, your commercial rights to some other to some third. Well, the Masters nearly died early on. I mean, was it, it was it? almost on yeah. its feet. Yeah, Huggy, the Masters had a Miss Augusta pageant every year for the first few years, where they would parade women in bikinis in convertible cars down the main street of Augusta. 
think there's plenty uh, problematic about it. They did everything <laughs> to survive. But in, an, in a market that we're in now, the truly stupid thing is to try to compete with what everybody else is doing when we can't afford to compete. The next least palatable option is to allow somebody who's a bit more competitive to hook up with them because they've got a slightly better chance than you of making it something and then getting completely lost in the fray is the sensible thing, in fact, to do the completely radical and do what Logue suggests and just step completely outside the system and say, right, this is the Australian Open. That's what it is. You want to win it, you come and play in it. You don't want to win it, don't come and play in it. I think that the best you could hope for, I mean, you're right about the Rory's and, you know, you'd have to pay them to come, but... In the, it's, at least in the short term, you, you could build something where you got all the guys on the way up coming through, like they do in Europe. It, it's some you can argue that, that it's a kind of feeder tour. It could almost be like a feeder tour, but certainly in the short term. And then, but it if it got past that stage, that basically you know in the master scenario, it, if you give it a decade of that, you would build something. I mean, you just try. It's, it's got to be a dedicated. No. I've heard Jeff Ogilvie argue this. All you can do is you start with that and you try and make it better every year. Yes. And in 10 years' time, you've got something special. That that right. might be the best scenario for the Australian Open. And that's the part that's lacking because we live in a world where there's success demanded each and every year. So we've we, stumbled we demand from one year to the next, every year. Yep. Getting, yep. getting one big player every year. Well, the Australian Open's fine because Jordan's playing. The Australian Open's fine because Rory's playing. The Australian Open's fine because Adam's here this year. That's just not a long-term no. proposition. You know, we had a real purple patch there where Jordan came for three years and really sold the Australian Open overseas. I think he genuinely did like it and enjoyed it. I think he would have preferred it if it was played in Melbourne from a golf perspective, but that was fabulous for the Australian Open. But And now this pandemic has given an opportunity to think about some radical ways to do it differently. I don't think we're going to come out of it with a radical plan, unfortunately, but it would have my support. I would be nervous like you said, like you'd never have the courage to institute your own plan, but if you came up with it, I'd back you on it and say, well, look, we're going nowhere with what we're doing. We're, we're continuing to do the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. We all know that's the definition of madness. We've got to do something. If we're going to die, let's at least die on our feet rather than live on our knees kind of idea. Yeah. Well, I think you'd Because the Australian dial- Open is important in golf. Yeah. I mean, imagine what's the best case scenario with the course that we're on. You, you dial up all, you turn all the dials up to max with the Australian Open and you might get the prize pool up to $5 million or something Maybe. and you might attract- Australian dollars. You might, Australian yeah, dollars. You might attract four or five uh, of the top 50 players in the world um, and that's still not going to compete with the prize pool at the Fortinet Championship last week. No. It's, no. it's not competing not with the Saudi International on the Asian Tour. So, mm. yeah. The purse is not the answer. On this current course, we hit it out of the park and achieve every goal that we set ourselves. It's still not going to rival the Fortinet Championship. <laughs> so, you've got to read. Well, we're just it's talking about money. You know. Yeah, well, not with money, but yeah. Ask any player in the world whether they have an Australian Open trophy on their mantelpiece or the Fortinet Championship. And I don't care who they are. Well, the if they're a proper golfer, they're going to they're going to offer which is Australian Open. You've got to lean into the that's exactly the tournament. Right. You've got to lean into that, and that takes yeah, courage. That's your yeah. yeah. I don't know why we always bring it up in the context of the PGL, though, because the that's that's never going to be the right formula for the Australian Open either, because it it's no 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 not for a the closed event. But, 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 but 
Yes. Um, well, yeah, and teams and that whole idea is yeah, and the teams for thing and everything. Shotgun starts. It's everything yeah. the Australian Open isn't. Yeah. <laughs> the Australian yeah. Open is last century golf, and it needs to lean into that, not be this twenty first century thing. Which brings us neatly to. And I'm going to use the words here, Logan. I'm not having a two-podcast suspension because in the context of news, it's like fair use. You're allowed to use the words FedEx Cup in terms of news, okay? We've had reader correspondence. Didn't give me a lot of time correspondence to prepare, actually, Yeah, <laughs> just actually for the State of the Game podcast. But we've talked about similar things here, and I think um, uh, Grant Hutton, thank you, Grant, makes some uh, interesting points that will be worth discussing. Hi, Rod. I've noticed a theme in the last few State of the Game podcasts about the FedEx Cup and just wanted to get in touch. He's right. There's been a theme. There's been one here too. Although I share your lack of enthusiasm for the contrived format, thank you, Grant. We are brothers in arms. I think the podcast fails to explain the background and reasons for why this has come to be. Ultimately, the FedEx Cup bonus pool is a way of distributing more prize money to the top players. True. In a team sport, the biggest draw, be that Aaron Rodgers, Lionel Messi or Mookie Betts. Okay. Who knows anything about Mookie Betts? Anybody? I'm say ho- ice hockey, maybe? I don't know. It sounds Huggy? like a Mookie sounds like an ice hockey name. D- dressage. <laughs> dressage, that's brilliant. Uh, baseball, apparently. Okay. Um, mark something. Baseball. Mookie Betts. Uh, they'll get paid several times what many other players on the team will earn. These are the guys that sell shirts, get people watching or buying tickets, and ultimately make a chunk of money for their team and sport. In golf, they don't want to just dish out an extra $30 million to the top players for turning up, so the FedEx Cup has developed into a way of splitting more of the cash to the top guys who drive the TV viewers, ticket sales, advertising revenue, and interest in the sport. For context, Aaron Rodgers gets paid $21.5 million this season by the Packers. Rory McIlroy's on-course earnings for 2021 are $4.4 million, and Rodgers still gets paid if he gets injured or throws three interceptions every week. When you think of it that way, it makes a bit more sense that the elite best of the best get a bigger slice of the cake, and there's some air quotes around all of that, almost every year, especially when trying to fend off rival tours and events. And I do quite like this, keep talking golf. That's a nice way to sign off, isn't it? Nice, nice. Well done. Did, did he? How many Gs did he put in talking golf? Just one, but he did separate the two words. So, you know, he's, he's swings and roundabouts there, Logue, swings and roundabouts. But uh, so... I'll give you guys some time to digest some of that. So the first thing that strikes me, and we've kind of talked about this before, and in fact, Clates has said this more than once, you could make the case that Tiger Woods is the is the most underpaid athlete in sport. And there's some truth. That, that, that's true. I don't think you can make that case for other players. I think, once again, Tiger stands aside and alone in that. But he can make, compared to team sports, etc., that's true. Golfers don't make a lot of it. Here's the points that strike me. Firstly, all of the sports that he's pointed out there, American football, baseball, what was the other one? Uh, Lionel Messi, soccer, much, 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 much bigger audiences, much, 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 much bigger corporate uh, support, much bigger. The other thing that strikes me is that other athletes, they have much shorter and much more dangerous careers. Aaron Rodgers' career could end this weekend. In fact, it could end at training, completely end. That's it, over. So there's a much shorter window. Rory McIlroy will most likely play golf, he may not be one who does, but if he wants to, he can play golf into his 60s. And still, uh, Bernard Langer, how much has Bernard Langer won this year, Huggy? <laughs> he's made more this year than I'll make in my life. Yeah, playing I'm sure he's, and I'm sure he's kept most of it, yeah. I was going to say, he could probably still pull out the first money earned this year and show it to you. The other thing that I think that people forget, those other athletes, they give up a lot more independence. Golfers play where they want, when they want for the most part. The rules are pretty 
loose on the tour. You play 15 events a year. And I think once every five years, you've got an add an event that you haven't played before. But generally speaking, that independent contract idea really appeals to golfers and they have great freedom. They can play where they want and when they want to take a month off, take a month off. Six weeks off, take six weeks off. You want to play four weeks in a row, play four weeks in a row. You don't get to do that in a team sport. Training's every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It's from these hours to these hours. Here's your gym. They give up a whole lot more. They're much more owned by the entity. And so in return, they're they're paid uh, more for that. So I guess the, the question then is, and I'm just assuming you agree with all of that because there's such extraordinarily pertinent points that I've made, you couldn't possibly disagree. So there's some of the things I think that uh, work in that. The biggest one being that golf is a much smaller sport than any of those others is the truth of it. But does the FedEx Cup, this is what intrigues me, achieve the goal that Grant has laid out for it to split the money up between the top players? So I took a look at Took a look at the 14 winners of the FedEx Cup to see if that goal was being met. The big names, the real drivers of interest, whether they were winning the FedEx Cup. 2007 Tiger Woods, yes. 2008 VJ Singh, great player. Don't think he sells a lot of shirts. 2009 Tiger Woods, yes. 2010 Jim Furyk, major driver of ticket sales in golf. 2011 Bill Haas, great shot at the Tour Championship. Memorable. Don't know if he sells many shirts. 2012, Brant Snedeker. You have anyone got a Snedeker shirt in the closet? <laughs> no. No? Lovely guy. I do like Snedeker, by the way. Nice bloke. Mm. 2013, Henrik Stenson. Mm, maybe. 14, Billy Horschel. 15, Jordan Speed. Yes. 16, McElroy. Yes. 17, Justin Thomas. Mm, maybe in America. 18, Justin Rose. Mm, a bit like Thomas, but maybe outside America. Uh, 2019, McElroy, yes. 2020, Dustin Johnson, yeah, probably a yes. And 2021, Patrick Cantlay. So if the idea was to reward the ticket sellers and the shirt sellers in the PGA Tour, does that list say that that's been achieved with the FedEx Cup? They're just the winners, of course. All of those players would have got bonus money at the end of the year and the end of the series, etc. So I take Grant's point, but I'm not sure that They've got it right yet. It's always seemed to me, Huggy, the problem for the PGA Tour is FedEx came along with a huge big pile of money and said, can you give this away for us? And the PGA Tour said, how the hell do you expect us to do that? And this is what they've come up with. Are are we assuming that um, the top players are driven by money to that extent? Mm. Yes. It motivates every decision they make. It's the reason they don't come and play here. Based based on on what what Mickelson was saying, yeah. Yeah, Phil likes the money. I I grant you that. that. I don't think... It's Rory true of all of them, you know. I, Rory I think no, Jordan probably no. I, I don't think that they're they've got enough. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I, I just don't see that um, that these incredibly rich people are. You, does it make any difference to their lifestyle? I mean, you get to a certain point, and it just doesn't make any difference. Well, Cameron Smith said when he was asked before the. Tour Championship, what would you do if you won the FedEx Cup and the 15 million? And his honest answer was to shrug and say, I don't know, maybe buy another couple of fishing rods. There you go. Now that's flippant, but it yeah. tell, it's telling, is it not? Are we, de- we, I think, as fans, Logo, desensitized to money because, of course, we don't get it. I'd be very excited about the opportunity to win 15 million bucks, but I'm not excited about you having the opportunity to win 15 million bucks in anything like the same way, not surprisingly. Are the players now desensitised to the money? And is that a problem? What do you do to drive interest on both sides of the fence, then, both amongst the players and the fans, if money isn't going to do it? I think you made the, the, the more valid point earlier when you talked about the time. 
the time is the most if i was making that money sort of money every year time would be the most valuable thing that i owned mm-hmm. and the, the ability to to live the life that i wanted to live off and off and off and on the course would be far more attractive than just money at a certain point i mean and i have to think that the guys we're talking about at the very top of the game they've reached that stage mm. i mean i can I, I do not believe that rory at this point is to use him as an example is driven by money in any way shape or form i mean rory could stop now and he, and his great great grandkids would still not have to work a day in their lives so I, i'm i'm dubious about that argument and but the other side of that coin is, and I've said this before, that I don't understand why these guys don't, the top 10 in the world, don't get together at the start of every year and decide that they're all going to go somewhere, mm. 10 different places, just for the I hell of it. Yeah, to go just, and Rory, again, I always use him as the example. He went to the South African Open three years ago, whatever, uh, as a favour to Ernie, and the place was moving with kids. Yeah. You know, he he brought with him the, everything that you would want a golf tournament to have. And why don't they do that once a year? One week of a year, just do it. Just go, don't get paid, play for the money, you know, just do the right thing and do, the do right a thing. clinic, do all that. Just for one week of your life, do the right thing each year. And all, all 10 of them could go somewhere different. And you can imagine the difference that would make if they did that for 10 years in a row. Uh, as I say, the money thing—I'd be disappointed if if that was the driving force at a certain point for these guys. I mean, but it's there's the got to be more scoreboard. to life than that, right? But it's the only scoreboard, isn't it, Huggy? So the tour and the players are in a business relationship. The tour runs the tour and generates money for the players, and so the only scoreboard you have is the money. So the player looks at football and says, "Well, Aaron Rodgers is getting twenty-one million a year. I'm the best player on the PGA Tour." FedEx Cup aside, can't lay one four million or something. I think five. Yeah, million but I'd be looking at my total income, not just what I won on the course. Yeah, but, okay, you're, you're talking be... about you personally. Yeah, you talk about you, but I'm saying that the scoreboard here is what Mickelson's talking about. Twenty six percent of the money comes to the players, and then that's not well, exactly distributed evenly, etc., etc., etc. But the only scoreboard you can have is the money, isn't it? And so I understand how we got here. I like you. Don't think it's healthy, and ultimately, I don't think long term. Well, I'll tell you who I'd be. The most nervous person in golf would be whoever's in charge of the Champions Tour. They've got about 10 years, and then they've got a bunch of players who aren't interested at all. Yeah. yeah. Not even a little bit. They've already lost most of the, the last generation. They're certainly not going to – I can't see Jeff Ogilvy spending a lot of time playing the Champions Tour either, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so that that's – if you Mike Wan's mentioned the 50-year plan. Oh God, I hope there is one. But if you were doing a 50-year plan for the PGA Tour, I'm not sure what role money's going to play. It obviously has to play some – but I just don't know, and I don't know how else you do motivate people. I don't know what else you can do. We all remember when the Sun City Championship became the first million-dollar winner. That was a huge deal, Hungy. We remember it, so it can't have been that long mm. ago because we're quite young men, obviously. Obviously. We're way past that. I think you're now at the point, I think we're almost at the point where you've got to earn a million on the PGA Tour, Logue, to keep your card. So that's going down to 125. If it's not there yet, it's pretty close. Well, that, a million that bucks end of to it. keep your card. Yeah, I find that end of it much more interesting to examine in, in this context. Like, you know, at what point in the world rankings, say, are you not able to make a decent living out of golf, out of being a professional golfer? I don't know what that point is at now because out of that million dollars, the of at least from the PGA Tour, 125th in the PGA Tour, 
there's a lot of expense just playing in the PGA Tour. But then probably about 150,000 and then taxes. They're probably okay, so they're fine. Half a, they're, half they're a million fine. at least. Yeah. yeah. They're doing fine. And then probably your top 25 or so on the Corn Ferry Tour are getting enough PGA Tour starts and earning enough money from the, P- the Corn Ferry Tour that they're, they're doing okay as well. And then your top 80 or so from uh, Europe are probably in the same same boat. So is that is that a healthy state of professional golf? I, I think it probably is. Like all, all we're talking about here is shuffling the pieces around on the board a little bit. The the experiment that's played out in front of us over the last few decades has been one hundred percent driven by uh, financial reward. Like mm-hmm. that's mm. that's the basis behind every decision that's been made in professional golf at the highest level in uh, for several decades now and What's damage the Australian open to the point where it is that's right and so market forces have determined that this is where we're at and uh, all we're talking about here at this point is just going to nudge it very in very small increments in one way one direction or another but the basic eco- economy of the professional tours is very well established now because we've had this experiment play out for several decades now and uh yeah i I think we're not we're we're splitting hairs at this point about talking about different models and everything we're just so far down the road of of finance and sponsorship driving every decision that uh it's 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 inconsequential true it's certainly true of the pga tour i mean the, the pga tour is a business and golf is just the vehicle that they use to make money they, they don't. I mean, this is sounding awfully harsh, and I'm sure it's not 100 percent true. But they, they don't have much feeling for golf. No. It seems to me, uh, you know, Many. borderline exactly close to zero. And it's just a way to make money, and and that is the you know, it's tasteless. I mean, it's just it offends me that they 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 use Active, the game that it? we love to 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 make just 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 for money. Is that it's got to be more to it than that. I mean, why? Why? In long term, I don't think it's a great business policy for them. I think long term, if they wanted to make a, their their product better, they should be going to better courses, mm. more variety of courses, different country. They should the the the, the old world tour chestnut is, is coming to my right. lips, unfortunately. But that that to me is the future for for you know as a business. I mean, that would be a far more attractive product. To I would have to think to the vast majority of golfers than the Aha, same key word. That's the key word, though, Huggy. Yeah. If you're the PGA Tour and your focus is golfers as fans, and I think that's where their fans come from, and I'm not sure that they understand that it's never really going to go much outside that. But you're right if you talk about golfers. But if you're a business, you look at the pool of golfers, oh, that's extremely limiting. Why would you just want the golfers as fans? Yeah, well, they're you trying to the- attract the numbskulls that, that shout mashed potatoes and all that stuff. That that's Well, they're not. <sighs> they're attracting the numbskulls. They're not trying to. That's just who's coming if you're, if you're well, going to bring them That's the mistake they're making then, yeah. I think so too, but it's a it's a complex thing. Two questions to, to ponder. One, what's more offensive, the FedEx Cup or the PIP as a notion? <laughs> And while you're chewing on that, Huggy, how far down any of the money lists do we have to go before you'd find a golfer happy to swap their pay packet for ours? I don't reckon you're on a tour. 
No, I don't reckon you're on a tour before that. you find the person who's prepared I mean, to make that swap. You know, I, I can't speak for you, Rod, because I mean, you're obviously one of the highly paid uh, members of yeah. the, the media. But <laughs> look at him just up um, in his ivory tower there in his yeah, that's exactly yeah, right, talking golf, talking golf studio compound at the <laughs> compound here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you've got to be, you've got to work two or three months to, to earn you know that million dollars we were talking. Oh, about. sometimes, so, sometimes, yeah. But um, yeah, your, your point's well made. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there is one. You know. I don't think you're. You're certainly not on a tour. There's a chance you might not have been. Uh, you might not have taken up the yeah. game I yet. I mean, <laughs> the, the game. The game they play now is is never been more divorced from from us, and mm. neither is the, their lifestyles the same. No, you know they Every they live different thing. lives than we do. Yeah, completely, completely. What about the FedEx Cup versus the PIP? Like, is are they are they offensive? And is one more offensive than the other? Uh, well, we yet to see. Well, sorry, the PIP. Oh, I don't, don't care. I mean, I, I think Mickelson's right. It's sort of. It's not a lot of money. It's it's more of a. Uh, I don't know. It's just not Does a lot it, of money to me, at least. It it eliminates the problem the FedEx Cup got, which is has got, which is you've got to play a golf competition and you can never actually completely fix the result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always going to be somebody yeah. who might come. At least the PIP money. If the goal is to reward the blokes who sell shirts, the PIP does that, or it should do that. That's what it does. If you're selling the tickets, you should get the money. Yeah, and they've come up with all sorts of weird metrics, as any corporation yep. would, in order to sort of manufacture a result there. Uh, I can see their motivations. At least, you know, that's fine. I can see their motivations. They're not lying to me with that, at least. No. What, what right. they get out FedEx of it. FedEx Cup they are, aren't they? <laughs> the they're, FedEx they're lying Cup, to us. They're, oh, they're a handicap event. But the, the FedEx Cup, the danger there, I feel, is that FedEx won't sponsor it forever. Um, like what sponsorship deal lasts forever? There's none. And no. are they going to be able to replace FedEx with another company nope. that's going to tip in that amount of money? So once you've set that expectation, it's very hard to uh, to dial that back without looking like a complete failure. So is it is it built to last? Is it a sustainable business? Uh, probably not. It's going to have a very challenging time when FedEx leaves them. And uh, that might not happen for 10 years. That, and, they keep locking in for long periods, FedEx. They're definitely investing in the game. And despite all of the, let's be frank, bad publicity, not just indifferent publicity, bad publicity, we have ragged on it from the start, publicly, loudly, and to our enormous audiences, Huggy. I know there's at least two or three people. have. Well, somebody's written to us about bitching about the FedEx yeah. Cup, so um, you, you wonder we always about say, We always say FedEx, though, don't we? Maybe yeah, of course. that's the key. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, it's, the, it's, of course it's partly the key. Shilling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Shilling, that's right. We or, need to get on the Louis train, UPS. We're in the pocket. Yeah. Lee, Louis, you and me. That's who will be on the UPS train. <laughs> other, other delivery services are available, yes. Yeah. <laughs> He's a BBC man to the core. Yeah. Last question. Um, with these rival leagues, is there enough to be actually fighting over? Is it a surprise in some ways that there'd be rival leagues in golf? Is it big enough to really be bothered fighting about trying to take over at the top level huggy is there enough money in it really especially when you compare it to those team sports that grants mentioned what's it cost to buy an nfl team well yeah i mean the yeah the saudi money was you know i'm sure it was attractive obviously phil's it's piqued his interest but are you going to be able to build a tour around the the phil mickelson's the the guys who are past their best despite the PGA they become team owners year. Huggy that's that's how that yeah. works that's, they become the well, team principal. the wants to I'm not sure what, does the Super I, League, does the Saudi one still work that way I'm not sure I, I'm not I'm not sure but I don't care about the Saudi one but the because the PGL is the one that interests me but 
Uh, mm. I'm really intrigued by this team leadership because it's not so much, I think, a lack of sponsorship money out there. I think there's just enough market forces are working out. So there's just enough money to go around in golf for about the amount of money it deserves for the audience that it has. But uh, you don't have enough players to go around, enough interesting players. We've been through this exercise before where, you know, you, you count down the top 50 and you get, yeah, Spieth's interesting, uh, Leishman's interesting, Cameron Smith, um, Rory, uh, DJ to some extent. It starts harsh, to get... But the current FedEx Cup champion wouldn't be on the list, would he, Patrick Cantley? No, probably not. That's harsh. Uh, it, obviously, um, Brooks and Bryson probably... So, anyway, it, you start to run out of names pretty quickly, not enough to fill the field every week, even with the limited field of the PGL. But you add in team principles and suddenly it gets super interesting because F1 is a bit the same. Like I, I just like that they're trying to look at the F1 model and see how they can make that interesting. There's 22 drivers, I think, in F1, something like that. They're not all interesting. Everyone, nobody knows Nikita Mazepin or, uh, you know, the some of the, uh, the lesser team drivers. They, there's no interest in them. But the team principals are pretty interesting personalities and they put them on camera all the time and they're always talking about... The pr- and setting up rivalries between them, and it's a little bit like the wrestling or something. Like it's, it creates a bit of theatre, and uh, I, I think that's if the you're way looking you get- to grow the audience beyond existing golf fans. In fact, get Michael on the face Jordan of it, to come. That would in. be a fabulous get, way to do it. Absolutely, get, get Michael Jordan, Jordan to come in a as, a, as a team principal. Um, mm-hmm. A couple, of, I don't. Know, there's plenty of people from outside of golf who would be interested in it. Maybe modest. Mm. Uh, What's, what's his name? Niall Horan. Niall Horan could own a team. Um, could yeah. own a team. You know, so I, I think there's something really interesting in that concept and that, that'll that bring in another audience and it adds personalities to the talent pool. Which You're, you're asking them to take on and beat the establishment, which is the, the hardest thing to do in life for anybody, no matter how much money they've got. Then they become it's the establishment, very, Huggy. That's how it works. Well, like, yeah, but... Yeah. <laughs> I think the the establishment in golf is pretty well established. Um, the Europeans so, can keep winning the Ryder Cup, Huggy. The PGL can prevail. I'm not even well, sure I'm cheering for the PGL. My instinct, yeah. as soon as I heard about the PGL, leaving aside the Saudi connection initially, and I know that's now passed, my initial instinct, as I imagine for most golfers, was as if. Not interested. Not interested. Immediately hostile towards it. But the more I think about it, there's some interesting ideas. I agree with you, Huggy. I'm not sure that... They'll topple the establishment. If the Saudis want to topple the establishment, they actually do have enough money to do it. I'm not sure if they're interested enough to bother. Mm. But if they really wanted to, they could. They'd just have to overpay significantly. But the PGL thing does have – some of those ideas have some interest. Will Bardwell made this point in a column some months ago. The dumbest business decision the PGA Tour made was this notion of just immediately putting a stop to it and trying to pretend like it wasn't going to happen and still. What they actually should do, smart business, is steal some of the ideas. I was, that's exactly what I was going yeah, to say. Just steal some of the ideas. To Greg Norman. You know. Yeah. Just yeah. take it. That's and, a good idea. Let's the, do that. Yeah. Yeah, the PJ Tour would bugger it up, obviously. Well, but just yeah. invite Andy Gardner inside the tent. Say, hey, Andy, why don't you run within the PGA Tour? You figure out, tell us how to do it. But yeah, we kind of like, don't mind the sound of that. Here's some money to go away and play and make it happen. That would be the smartest business decision. Yeah. Um, instead, maybe, it's got to be better than what they're doing. Yeah. Hey? If you had 12 of, 12 of those events a year, one a month, that would work. Yeah, of course it would. And the notion of this 13th team that the public gets to vote for, the most appealing and least talked about aspect of it, I think, in so many ways, is this notion of a two-week festival where you have a women's event and a men's event with the PGL. That's one of their things. Is that every, every event is a two-week festival. 
There's some really interesting and, and, and good ideas in it. Certainly ideas worth trying. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, don't the know, I, I can't get over the women. Yeah. They, they need to get into, they need to do more for, for women's golf. I mean, they, they, that's the huge untapped market for it's golf. the sleeping giant of world golf. Yeah. Isn't for it? return it really on is. investment, if you were smart, that is exact, and you wanted to get into golf, that is exactly where you're from the, from the, from the coal face up, everything about women's golf is much more appealing for the person that comes along with some money. From the interaction with the players at the very ground level right through to how willing the LPGA and the LET are to be, you know, um, open to, to new ideas and stuff in terms of you got some money, tell us how you want to spend it. Much but, more I mean, so than the PGA Tour of men's golf. Look, look how exciting it is to see... Uh, you know, a team captain, like even somebody as banal as Steve Stricker, we're all interested in him this week because he's a captain of the Ryder Cup team. Steady, steady. <laughs> Not all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I did say, I did qualify that with someone yeah. as banal yeah. as Steve Stricker. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> nice player. <laughs> uh, but ev- even he gets elevated to another level, right? It becomes somebody that people want to listen to and he, he's heading up press conferences. Imagine yeah. like Susan Pedersen with, with their headset on every week out Whoa. there managing a team of men. How cool would she that She might be? punch someone. She might punch someone soon. Yeah. Steve Stricker's one of those guys that he, there's a great myth growing up around him, just the same as it did with Brad Faxon and Lauren Roberts, who were supposedly these great world class putters. Name me one putt that they ever hold and still in your mind that they had to hold. One give me give me one. There isn't one. Uh, very competent tour pro, weren't they? But <laughs> I'm sure they're all, they're all great pros. guys. Yeah. They're very nice people, great husbands and fathers, but, uh, you know, I'm not giving them the, this great putter thing. I'm not I will give Faxon this, Huggy. He played at the Lakes many years ago. It might have been, might have been going back to the 90s. He came to Australia a few times. He played at the Lakes, and on the 11th hole, he'd hit it up the left side near the rope where I just happened to be standing with my mate. And he came up with his caddy, and they had a big discussion about whether they should go for it. There was a big water carry there at the lakes and that sort of stuff. And it was obviously right on the limit of his three wood or whatever he would be hitting. And he pulled out a six iron, and he laid it up, and he turned around and apologized to the whole crowd. He just turned around and said, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> he a, yeah. And I thought, Brad, I'm giving him yeah. a couple of points for that. Yeah. I mean, good Brad's setup. a good guy. I know I know Brad, he, and he is a good guy. But um, the, the, the putting thing amuses me. The, these guys get this, they get hailed as this one, the, the you know, peerless putters. And Whereas Polter. Give, me, what, give me one example of that of a great putt that they've hold when they absolutely yeah. had to hold it. Yeah, well, that, and that's what Polter's looking at. He's hold some of the great putts when he absolutely sort of had to. Yeah. And now we think he is a great putter, and the putting guru says, eh, he's all right. <laughs> he's okay. Well, technique- We've gone longer than I meant to, gents. Um, yeah. It's been engaging for us. If there's any listeners left, thank you, and uh, you earn a PIP point for um, sticking around for so long. Huggy, always great to catch up with you, mate, and I'm sure that you, like us, will be enjoying. We'll be on your side this week. I know that in the media we're completely unbiased and objective, but, of course, go Europe. We all want Europe <laughs> to win. I think it was Clates asked last week, is there anybody who's not American who doesn't barrack for Europe? It's like, no. Yeah. Of course not. It, w- it would be amusing if they won. I, I will concede that. But I, you know, I, I do I think really it'll be an interesting care. one. Yeah, it so. will be an interesting. I, I agree with you. But as long as it's it's got to be close. It was the beauty of the yeah. Presidents Cup in 2019 and in 2015, yeah. and what the Presidents Cups lacked in other years is what's made the Ryder Cup is that it's been close. Yeah. Not There's nothing one, better. Been, nothing better. It's been a head-to-head contest. Absolutely. So we look forward to that. Thank you today, Huggy. That was. Uh, 
Most enjoyable. And Logue, I expect your email or text message with all those links to the various things I've got to put in the show notes a bit later today. But thank you for uh, for your contribution to this point. Sure. I actually wanted to get Huggy's uh, input on uh, whether the plural of assistant captains is assistance captain, but uh, we, didn't, we didn't really have time for that. But uh, yeah, looking forward to next week. Crowd controversy, I think, is going to be the story of the week, which for sure. we've talked about yet. I have very low expectations on that front. That's a... Did Stephen Proctor ever get back to us about the assistance captain thing? No, he didn't. Shame. This on. is all about. Yeah. This is all about governors general, Huggy. You familiar with this great yeah. old sort of you know the rule of governor general is governors general. So the question becomes: Is it assistance the, captain or assistant yeah, all the assistance captain out there next week, yeah. or is it holes in one or hole in ones? That's up there. This with is the, the question falling in the woods. My goodness, hey. it's the eternal <laughs> question. If a tree falls in the woods, is Mike Clayton standing there cheering? Yeah. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's right. Good, good. Episode 91, I think we said in the book. Back next week to do it all again. We will have a new, well, we'll know who's won the Ryder Cup here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.